when I was in high school, uh, we were given an assignment in English class to write a book report. And they said, you can go to the library, pick out any book that you want, um, read it, and write a report on it. He said, I don't want you to tell me what the story was about. I want you to tell me about the meaning of the book. So don't just summarize what the book is in this book report. Tell us what the book means. Well, I was looking through the library, and I saw Lord of the Flies. Well, I had just seen the movie a couple of times not too long ago. And I said, well, that's just perfect for me. Um, I, I know what the story's about already because I've seen the movie. And so I grabbed that and I started looking through it. And in the back of the book, there was an appendix. And it was the author had wrote a little essay about the book. And I started looking at that appendix, and it was the author telling what the book meant. And I said, well, this is even better. Not only do I already know the story, but I have the author tell me what the book is about, and he's telling me about all the symbolism. Everything that teacher wanted was right here in the appendix. All I have to do is read this appendix, and uh, I already know what the book is about. So I read that short little essay in the back, wrote a little report summarizing what the author had said the book was about, and I turned it in. I thought I'd hit a home run because, you know, I got from, straight from the author's mouth what the book was about. And I was surprised when I got back and got C minus on it. And the teacher told me something along the lines that I had missed the theme of the book. That I didn't really know what the, that I missed the whole point of the book. And what I said it was about wasn't really what it was about. And uh, I had messed up because instead of giving credit in my report, so as the author said in this thing, I made it seem like I made it up. And so I couldn't say, well, that's what the author said because would, I would have been busted. So I just had to take a C and just be aggravated with the fact that my teacher was telling me that it didn't have the meaning that I knew that it had. And it wasn't because I felt it that way. It's because the guy who wrote the book said, this is what this book is about. Well, that kind of aggravated me and put me off on that kind of study for uh, the rest of my school time, because what's the point? If I can find out what the author said and what the author meant from his own mouth, and the teacher tells me it's wrong, because it's subjective up to the individual, then doesn't mean anything. And it was just confusion, and I, I didn't have any understanding. How can you have any understanding? If something means something to you and it means something to me, and we both disagree, then what's it mean? It doesn't mean anything, it, or it could mean everything. And, and we know that kind of thing just isn't, isn't the truth. It's confusion read where Edward R. Murrow said of the Vietnam War, anyone who isn't confused doesn't really understand the situation. And um, I think that that kind of summarizes our world, that there's confusion everywhere. What is the truth and who can know the truth? Um, you can turn on one news channel and you get one uh, story and turn on the, another news channel about the same situation and get a completely different story. Not too long ago, the Prime Minister of New Zealand said concerning COVID that the government will be your sole source uh, for the truth. And if you don't hear it from the government, then don't believe it. We are your sole source of information for truth. Well, that's kind of a scary thing to hear somebody in power say, that we will tell you what is true and what is not, and we will tell you what to believe and, and what not to believe. Well, you get on social media, and they have fact checkers. And they'll tell you what's true and what's not true, but who checks the fact checkers? I don't know, I don't know about that, but, but they'll say this is true and this is not true. 
Maya Angelou said there's a world of difference between truth and facts. Facts can obscure the truth. And that is true. Because you can take a set of numbers and make them mean whatever you want them to mean. You can, you can take a set of information and only take part of it and tell a completely different story than if you have the whole set of information. That's just out in society. What about Christianity? Every heretic um, that comes in the name of Christ has got a Bible verse. They'll, they'll say the Bible says, and then they'll go off and spout something the Bible doesn't say. There's some Christians that say that the answer to that is to adopt the confession or believe the confession. And then you say, well, the confession is what is true, and that tells us what the Bible says, so I need to study the confession to understand what the Bible says. And others will say the only way to understand the Bible is first to understand this theology. And once you understand theology, then you can go to the Bible and read the Bible. But you can't understand the words of God until you first understand the words of men. Well, you got different theologies, different doctrines, different um, churches teaching different things. Not to mention how Christians and Christianity is portrayed in the country. It's hard to say what non-believers who just live around here think about what goes on in, the, in a church. If they got nothing but their knowledge of Christianity from the, the daily news, then what would they think about our country? Well, they'd think we was in here plotting an overthrow of the government. There were Christian nationalists trying to, to build, to tear down the government and secret plots to, to overthrow um, the Constitution and, and start a, a, a Christian theocracy. Or you might hear that there's isolationists who want to start a parallel society. And, um, you know, I, I, I read one man, one pastor, saying that, that Christians need to start making their own uh, money and their own financial system, and, and only deal with and have a parallel society within, you know, just all kinds of different things that you, you can find where people say this is what Christianity believes. Some people believe that we're nothing but mean, hypocritical, unloving, women-hating fools, and, and so forth. You can go and listen to people out, and you got one group or of the amen and a-women persuasion of, of theology on that side, and then you got uh, Kenneth Copeland and Paula White praying as, as spiritual advisors to, to the former president. And, you know, all kinds of confusion and disarray. Well, how do we know what the real thing is? If we live in a society where your truth is your truth, and my truth is mine, and I'm not going to, and there's no right and there's no wrong, just what you believe then how can we know if what we believe about Christianity is the real thing? How can we know that we have the real, the real deal? How can we know that there is a story of Christianity? How can we know we have the right doctrine? Well, this is the point of 1 John. This is the point of 1 John. 1 John was written around 90 AD. It was one of the last books in the New Testament written. And it's probably in and around the town of Ephesus. So Christ had risen from the dead. He had ascended to the Father about 60 years earlier. Now that's not very long in the, in the span of things, 60 years. All the apostles are dead except for John. And you're just, about, you're just 60 years from the time that Jesus walked this earth. 
But already in those early days, people had come in to the churches and had started preaching falsehood. Already in this early time, people were trying to change the message and say, this is what Jesus really said. Um, Paul told the same church at Ephesus, so if, if John wrote this to the people in Ephesus, listen to what Paul said in Acts 20, 27. For I have not shunned to declare you the whole counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For this I know, or for I know this, that after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul says wolves are going to come in from outside, but people are going to even come in from the inside. But they're going to present a version of Christianity that is contrary to the, the truth that was given to them by the Apostle Paul. There, there's not different standards or different opinions that are acceptable. There is a truth, and Paul said, you better watch out, because people from the outside and people from the inside are going to start trying to twist you, trying to confuse you, trying to take part of the truth and add to it, we're taking part of the truth and taking away from it. Wolves entering in, false doctrines coming from within. That was the real danger. At this time, you're only about um, 20 years from the destruction of Jerusalem. But the real danger, the real danger to the churches was not the Roman Empire, but it was the false teachers that were coming in among the people. Um, we went to the library cell a couple weeks ago and um, was looking down there in Charleston and I saw um, in the religious section the Gnostic Bible and um, I bought it to, to read through it um, and reading through these teachings and what it is, it's this ancient text that rose up some before Christianity, some about this time even, um, that we're reading about now, most of it just not too long after this. But you read through it, and it tells stories from the Bible. But these Gnostic texts, these, these um, the, you know, gospel according to Thomas and these type of things, take things that were from the Bible, and they twist it, and they add to it. They took spirituality and biblical themes and wove in paganism and sensuality and uh, demonic mysticism. One of the stories I read actually turns everything upside down to where the good guys in the Old Testament were really the villains. Moses was a villain, and, and David was a villain that the, the real good guys were the, were the people that you would read in the Bible that they were opposed to, right? So Moses' enemies were really the good guys, according to this text. They twisted everything. Everything was very 
sensual. It was a very um, flesh-oriented. Well, this is the kind of stuff that, that blossomed out of this time period. That these people were taking Christianity and manipulating it and adding to it and changing it. And so what John does is John writes to give these Christians confidence. So imagine just that far, not that far removed from, from Christianity, and you've got all these different people saying different things. Different things about Jesus. Well, Jesus wasn't a real man. Oh, no, 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 you've misunderstood the story. Jesus appeared as a man. He didn't come in the flesh. That's what was being taught. Oh, no, 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 you misunderstand. Uh, Jesus was too holy to be a man. He just came and he looked like a man, but he was more of a, a spirit. That's what they were teaching. And so here you are, in, in this early time period, well, I don't know what to believe. You got these learned people who know a lot about the Old Testament. These Jewish people know a lot about um, Jewish uh, religion and so forth. Here I am, a Gentile, um, came out of paganism, and uh, who do I believe? What am I supposed to believe about this? Well, John writes to give them assurance, to give them confidence that you can know the truth. You can know and be sure that what you believe is the truth and not be troubled by false teachers, not be troubled by these men bringing in different doctrines. I'm going to set you down, John says, and I'm going to assure you, you can know what the real deal is. You can know what the Bible says. You can know who Jesus is. You can know that you have the real deal. You can know that you have true biblical Christianity. You can know how you are to live apart or in uh, as a follower of Christ, rather. So in John chapter 20, in verse 31, and we just got done uh, going through the gospel of John. In verse uh, 31 of John chapter 20, John says, But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John writes the gospel so you can believe the gospel, so you can believe in Jesus. If he would have taken all the things that Jesus did and wrote them in a book, he said the world could contain all these things. I'm not writing to tell you everything that Jesus did. I'm telling you to write that you can believe in Jesus, that you can trust him, that you can have faith in him. Well, these people have believed in Jesus. They have trusted in Jesus. But now they're hearing different things about him. Well, what if I don't have the right thing? What if I don't have the right information? What if I don't really believe? What's it mean to believe? Well, 1 John 5, 13, John says, These things have I written unto you that, that believe. These things have I written unto you that believe. You who believe in Jesus, you who have heard the gospel, who believe the gospel account um, that, that is given, that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So the Gospel of John was written that we might have life, and this epistle was written that we might know that we have life. G. Campbell Morgan said, in the former, in the Gospel, we have the divine life as revealed in Christ, and the latter, we have it realized in the Christian. 
The gospel declares the way of life through the incarnate Son. The epistle unfolds the nature of that life as possessed by the children of God. John tells us that we might believe, and he said, now that you do believe, I'm going to tell you how you can know that you know the Son of God. So what, that's what this book is about, is that we may know, that we may know Christ, that we may know that we know Christ, that we may know how we live or are to live. And so that, that's what this book is about. And Lord willing, um, we are going to go through this, this gospel together, or this uh, epistle together, and to add on what we looked at in the gospel of John that we believe in Jesus, and now we know that we know we believe in Jesus. Um, the structure of this book is different than, say, Romans or any of Paul's letters or even Peter's letters. It's not a logical structure that if A, then B, then that equals C, or therefore C. But John uses a different technique. It's, a, he, it's an amplification. It's not linear. So, in other words... He doesn't say, we're going to start with the foundation. So like in Romans, Paul starts, he says, I'm going to tell you about uh, faith in Jesus Christ. Then he starts off that the Gentiles are guilty before God. And then chapter 2, he says, um, the, the Jews are guilty before God. Then chapter 3, he says, everybody's guilty before God. And there's no way that you can be righteous under the, the law. And then you get to uh, chapter 4, he says, but we're not saved by the works of the law, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus came um, to, to die for our sins and, and to forgive us of our sins. And if we have faith, if we have faith like Abraham had faith, not in what we do, but what he did for us, then we'll have righteousness with God. And just because we're not under the law anymore doesn't mean that we're lawless, but we're not saved by the law. Those who are in Christ have no condemnation because we're saved by God's work. And we are indwelt with the Spirit, and we walk in the Spirit, and we have everlasting life because it was the Father who chose us and the Son who died for us, the Spirit who quickens us and lives within us, and we are safe in the Lord. We are safe in His Son. So it's very logical. It's very first this, then this, then this, and He builds a whole case all the way up through um, 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Well, John... This epistle doesn't do that. It's an amplification. So what he does is he takes themes. And he'll introduce a theme. And he'll we'll talk about that a little bit. Walking in the light, for example. And then we'll go from that to um, loving your brother. Then you go from that to um, abiding in Christ. And there's a light in, in life in Christ. And then we'll circle back around and do it again. And he'll talk about truth again and talk about love again and then maybe this time talk about false prophets instead of uh, the true prophets or, or maybe talk about loving not the world instead of loving Christ but it's those same, same things and he, just, he repeats so it's not like there's a chapter on love and there's a chapter on truth but, but those themes just keep reappearing so it amplifies every time it comes back up you get a little bit more information and it's very, it's very wonderful whenever you read that. And, uh, and once you get that in your mind, what he's doing, then you can start, you can start seeing how that he, he builds upon that and brings everything back together. He doesn't say, let's talk about love and then have 
a chapter on love, but he brings love into the context of what's being addressed, which leads to another topic, and then, and then which leads back to love again eventually with a different angle. So that, that's what's beautiful about this book and why I wanted to go through it um, verse by verse so we can see that together. In fact, um, I would encourage you to, to read the book maybe once a week or a couple times a week as we go through this. Um, I, I, got a, I, got, I got the audio book of 1 John on my phone, and it's 14 minutes, and the guy reads pretty slow. So if you, if you read at a, um, an average pace, 14, 15 minutes, and you should be able to read through 1 John. But I would encourage you to read it in the whole chunk at least once a week as we go through this. I, I, that's what I, I'm doing is, is, is reading this. And that way we can see and get, that, um, get what John is, is driving at here. Because like I said, what will be addressed in chapter 1 will also be addressed later on in the book in a different way. He, there's contrasts. He contrasts these things. So it's a light versus dark, truth versus error, love versus hate. But he shows these things that we might know that we know to separate what is true from what is false, what is light from what is dark, what is sin from what is holiness, what is love versus what is of the world. In the first part, he said the message is that God is light. So in verse John 1, 5, this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So there is a comparison, a contrast between light and darkness. And then in the second part, God is love. 1 John 3:11. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So John said, this is the message that God is light. This is the message that God is love. And these, these two things reappear over and over. But John wants us to know that we can know the truth. You can know these things. And what a blessing that is. Nobody knows anything. Everybody thinks they know something, but it's just opinions about stuff. Nobody knows anything. Solid. Apart from, uh, you know, out in the world, you're not going to find, you're not going to find something you can anchor your soul to. We sang that song, um, "Will your anchor hold?" Well, if your anchor is not the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not going to hold. If you're not clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not going to hold. If you're if you're clinging to hope in a politician, into a leader of the world, into people just being good people generally, that anchor is not going to hold. If your anchor is holding that science will show us the way that, um, you know, the, the academics will figure it out, they'll show us the way. Well, they have, they're people just like you and I are. Just because somebody wears a lab coat doesn't make them infallible, right? It doesn't mean that they don't have, they don't have um, uh, prejudices or, or preconceived notions going into something either, right? What can we know? Well, John says we can know about Jesus. We can know about these true things. And he wants you to know. He wants to be confident. And I tell you that the more that, that you get out away from the Scripture, the more sandy the, the ground is. That There's nothing true. Nothing holds. 
But there is truth. There's a solid ground in Christ. In fact, 25 times in the book of 1 John, the word translated that's translated to know or to know, knoweth, or to perceive, 25 times that's found in 1 John. To know or to perceive or to understand or to discern, to be assured of. 25 times in this short little book, John says, we can know, we can know, we can, we can understand, we can perceive, we can discern, we can be assured of these facts, of these truths, know these things. In fact, truth, you find that word eight times in this book. And then the word confess or acknowledge five times. So 13 times we're talking about knowing the truth or professing the truth or declaring or acknowledging the truth. Over and over again, John says, you can know, you can perceive, you can understand, and you can know truth. You can cling to that. And by knowing, that means we have something. If you know something to be true, then you've got something. Like the... um, I don't know if you saw the, the cryptocurrency guy um, swindled people out of billions of dollars, it looks like. Lots of money swindled those people out. Well, what do you have with cryptocurrency? Well, you have, it's digital. You don't have anything, do you? I guess with the dollar bill, you don't have, really have anything either. It's, it's not backed upon anything. But the fact is, with, with that digital currency, you, you certainly don't have anything. You don't have anything you can hold. You don't have anything you can touch. You say, well, I've got all these millions of dollars. Well, do you? Where, where is it? Where, what are you going to do with it? It might just vanish. It might just disappear. Well, if we know something that is true, that doesn't shift, that doesn't change, then we have something. And we can have things. And so um, I'm not going to read all these, but we can have fellowship. Chapter 1, verse 3, 6, and 7. We may have fellowship with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1 says we have an advocate. Chapter 2, verse 20, we have unction. Chapter 2, verse 28. Chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 17, we have confidence. We have boldness in these things. Chapter 3, verse 3 says we have hope. Chapter 4, verse 21, we have the word of God. We have the commandments from God. Chapter 5, verse 12, we have the Son of God. He doesn't say you might have things, you hope to have things. These are things that you have. We have confidence. We have hope. We have the Word of God. We have the Son of God. We have an advocate. We have fellowship. We have the truth. We have the understanding. We have the ability to understand what we have been given. We don't have to have someone to teach us, but we have the Holy Spirit who will teach us. That's not saying that you don't need a teacher, but it's saying that you're a part of the new covenant. That you have the Holy Spirit. That you can discern between truth and error. Between Christ and Antichrist. Between uh, the real deal and the the falsehood. Calvin said that John stresses the invariable uncertainty of the Christian message with the repeated expression, from the beginning. So he says that um, from the beginning, you have these things. That which was from the beginning, you have them. 
So he's having confidence, confidence in the word of God, confidence in the gospel message, confidence that Christ is true, confidence that we know the gospel and believe the gospel and will receive all these blessings. Believe these things. As opposed to the, um, the error that was coming in. So as he lifts up the truth, he talks about the deceivers or the seducers. Or as in chapter 4 and verse 1, the false prophet. Or as in chapter 2 and chapter 4, the Antichrist that have come into the world to deny that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, the whole book ends, little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, what's an idol? An idol is a false image. So people would make idols, they'd make an image of a dog or a cat, and they'd say, well, this is God, this represents God. Um, Aaron and the children of Israel made them of calves, right? So this is God. Behold, look at these calves that we made. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. That's kind of silly to think about, isn't it? That they're going to worship a cow? Of all creatures, they're going to worship a little cow. And, well, that's what they did. They said, well, this represents our God. Well, that's idolatry. They've taken, they've taken an idea from their mind and made an image, and now they're going to worship that image. Well, John says, keep yourself from idols. Not that you're going to go home and, and build an idol, but you might take an image that you have of God, and not, an idea that you have of God that's not found in the Scripture, and say, behold my God. See, that's the danger of going outside of the scriptures and using theological frameworks and, and using um, philosophy and these types of things and say, behold your God. It may be biblical, but it may, it may very well not be. So, you know, I, I'm very leery of, of people who are saying, well, you have to understand Plato and you have to understand these philosophers to understand the Bible. I don't think God made it to where we have to go to ungodly men to be able to understand what the Bible says. That's contrary to what John tells us. So we have to be leery of building idols from our own imagination. Cillo Baxter noted how John combats evil in this book by putting forth things that were said or thought. So, chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. In verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, then we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, I think what he's doing there is saying... This is, what, this is what people are saying. This is the, the error that's coming out here. That people were saying that they have fellowship with God, but they walk in darkness. And these other people are saying that they don't sin at all. Well, if we say this, if this is what you profess, well then you don't have the truth, and you make God a liar. So John says, this is what people are saying, I think, He's saying, if we say this, then look at the consequences. He's, he's pointing out what's being said and then showing how it's an error. Chapter 2, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
Verse 6, He that saith, he abideth in him, and ought himself also to walk even as he walked. He that saith, he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even till now. And then in chapter 4, verse 20, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother. Right, so he's saying, here's all these false claims about Christ, about sin, about Christian living, about how you ought to live as a Christian. And here's how they're all wrong. Here's how they're, they're deceiving you and tricking you and drawing you away. Just because a man says something doesn't mean it's true. Just because a, a, a preacher says something doesn't mean it's true. Because here we have all these instances. John says, if a man says, if someone says, if someone says, if it's contrary to Scripture, then we can't follow after it. In the book, uh, Bride's Head Revisited, there's a character named Rex, and he was a Protestant. And he was being instructed in Catholicism because his fiancée uh, was a Catholic. And so religion meant nothing to him, and one was good as another, so he didn't mind being instructed by that uh, priest, being instructed by a priest if his fiancée wanted him to. And so, you know, he's going to go along and do whatever his, his wife, his future wife tells him to do, so he's instructed by the priest. And the priest is asking him some questions and then um, is trying to discern if he really believes and what he believes. And the priest says, well, suppose the Pope looked up and saw a cloud and said it's going to rain. Would that be bound to happen? And the guy said, oh, yes, Father, that would be bound to happen if the Pope says it's going to rain. It's going to rain. Well, then the priest said, but, so, but supposing it didn't rain. And the man thought a moment and said, well, I suppose it'd be sort of raining spiritually, only we're too sinful to see it. His position was, well, if the Pope says it, it must be true. If the Pope says it's going to rain and it doesn't rain, then it must be a spiritual rain and I'm just too blind to see it. I'll, just, I'll believe whatever the, the guy tells me to believe. That is not how Christians are to act. You're not to, you're not to say, well, the, the preacher said it, so it must be true. We're to say, does the word of God say it? Does the Bible say it? Because a man can say all kinds of different things. It's easy whenever you're, you're talking to, to let your mouth run ahead of your, your mind and something might come out the wrong way. Or say something that's just plain false. Well, we have to be very careful because we can know the truth. We can discern between truth and error. So what was happening is people was coming in and confusing people about Jesus. Now listen, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. If you don't have Christ, it doesn't matter what you believe about anything else. You're lost without Christ. You don't have eternal life. Everything that you have in this life is just temporary, and you're going to lose it, and you're going to die and go to hell. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So what do you think false teachers do? Wolves, what do you think they'll do if they come into the flock? What do you think false teachers do when they come into the flock? It's always some false thing about Jesus. Some view that changes who Jesus is and his, his nature. And so there were some that John is fighting against was saying, well, Jesus didn't have a body. Because those Gnostics would say that um, the flesh is evil. Like those Gnostic readings I was telling you about um, in that book, 
they were either very sensual or very stoic. There was two extremes. They were very um, just creepy, really, the way that they were bringing in spirituality with, the, with demons and these angels and these spirits and so forth. Or it was deny yourself, deny yourself anything of the flesh. But it's all about the flesh. And so they would say, if all flesh is evil, then Jesus could not have been made flesh. And you see how you can take a false premise and then build your logic upon that? Everything created is evil, they said. All flesh is evil. Therefore, Jesus could not have been made flesh. He had to be a spirit. Well, that's twisting what the Bible means by flesh. It's also not taking into account the virgin birth. And it's just plain denying that Christ was conceived of the Holy Ghost in the womb of a virgin. It just says that. The text says that. So what's John says? That which we have from the beginning. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. John said, I was there. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. I grabbed a hold of Jesus. I touched him. Don't tell me that he, he was a spirit. I saw him. I laid my head upon his breast. I held the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't listen to these people that that are telling you all these lies about Jesus? You can know these things. You can know who Jesus is. It's not the atheists that we have to worry about. It's the false doctrine that, that will hurt us. Because if they take away the body, then there's no sacrifice. You take away the deity of Christ, there's no hope, no atonement. If you make Jesus something other than the God-man, who was truly God and truly man, then you don't have Christianity. You know, and when you start getting into speculations about Jesus and start talking about what the things that Jesus did that are not in the scripture and attributing things to Jesus that the Bible does not lay out for us, all because you have a notion of one thing happened and then you're going to say, well, if this happened, then logically, A, B, C, D. Well, you, better believe that, you better be sure that first thing happened or you, you've, you've got a false logic, a false conclusions. So John stresses these things are true, and because they're true, they'll change us. Commandment is in this text 14 times. Keep the word. Love. There's the love of God and love of the world. The word love is found in this epistle 28 times. Loving God, loving one another, loving the world, or, or so forth. And what's love? Well, love's keeping of the law. You know, pushing, you know, over 40 times, over 40 times, talking about the commandments are love. You keep the commandments of God? You desire to follow Jesus? Well, John says that's how you know that you believe. Because you act like you believe. Our salvation is not hinged upon what we do. But certainly if you believe something, you would, you would believe it. 
I heard a man use this example, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take it from him because it was pretty good. He said, "What if what if a man left his company and wrote and wrote instructions for the people to to take care of the business while he was gone, and got." And then every month he wrote him a letter and say, okay, now this is what we, I need you to do. I need you to take care of this and do this in the company and so forth. So they have a series of letters and instructions from the owner of the company. The owner of the company comes back and the whole office is in disarray. There's 500 uh, messages on the answering machine. Thousands of emails haven't been answered. The bills haven't been paid. The water shut off. The, the company's tanking. And they go in, and then, then there's the office. They have the letters there, bound in leather, sitting on the, on the table. And they go to the guys, what, what have you done? What, did you not get my instructions? Oh, yeah, I got your instructions. We have them right here. We went and have them leather bound. And we, we sit them here in this nice display case. We love these letters. They're beautiful. In fact, we have songs that we sing every morning before we start work. Um, songs that we wrote based upon your letters. And he said, but why didn't you do it? Why didn't you answer the phone? Why didn't you respond to the emails? Why didn't you pay the bills? If you love these letters so much, if you said that you were following my instructions, why didn't you do what I told you? And the beauty of that illustration is that well, we, well, that's what we've got here. We've got letters written by the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, the apostles who instructed the churches. Look, this is what Christians do. This is what Jesus has told you to do. Here's, here's what he wants you to do while you're here on the earth. And if we just have leather-bound um, images of, of what God says, and we, we set it very nicely on our bedstands, but we don't do what he says, what John is saying is then do you really believe what he says? So on the one hand, he says, make sure that you can know that you believe because you're doing that. But on the other hand, he says, that's how you can know. Because you're changed. You're a different person. I'm going to close with a, a quote from John Newton. He's a, he was an Anglican priest. He's the one that wrote Amazing Grace. and This is what he said. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. John's not calling us that we have to be perfect. But we can look at our lives and say, I'm not what I want to be, but I know I'm not what I used to be. And he took great comfort in that. And he knew that he knew the Lord because the Lord had changed him. He wasn't what he used to be. So as we go through this letter, we're going to see John's going to encourage us. He's going to ground us. He's going to challenge us. But remember, this theme is that we can know him. And we can know that we know. And have confidence, not be shaken.